Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. And happy Boxing Day to you. And it's not really a holiday. In fact, maybe you are out uh, beating away the crowds at Best Buy to get that like $20 off the big screen TV. But if you are perhaps wanting to calm your nerves as you deal with the chaos or uh, really hang up uh, hang up yourself uh, with the uh, sugar coma you are undoubtedly experiencing by staying home, whatever you choose, we are here for you. Uh, as we are coming to the end of the year, I, I wanted to do a, a bit of a look back at the last year, not just a regurgitation of the headlines. We'll do that to some extent later in the week, but to kind of take stock on a big question here, and that is the state of the Dominion, the state of Canada. You may have recalled a few months back, we interviewed uh, several of the contributors to a book called The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. We spoke about the value of honoring and knowing Canadian history. We spoke about wokeism and identity politics. It was a, a phenomenal read. We also did a, a lengthy interview with the editor of that book, Mark Milkey, who is the founder of the Aristotle Foundation. So I would encourage you to go and look up those, which are our very much timely today, as much as they were back in the summer and fall. But I thought we'd bring Mark back and have a, a bit of a different discussion and talk about the state of Canada as we wind down 2023 and start 2024, and also some of these ideas that we believe are so central to the Canadian existence. So joining me from the Aristotle Foundation is Mark Milky. Mark, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today, and a Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Happy Boxing Day and all of that. So it's good to be here. Thank you, Andrew. So let's talk about this big question here as succinctly as we can to get things rolling, which is, do you believe Canada's best years are ahead or do you think they are behind? Well, fundamentally, I'm an optimist and I think people can choose the, the future for the most part, right? Um, so I think our best years are possibly ahead and that's what I and others like to work on. And look, I think the last year has been one of chaos and unexpected surprises. And not every year is like that. Look, when I grew up in the 80s, I mean, it was a tough time, say, economy-wise in the early 1980s, or, you know, if you were a millennial, uh, you know, you were probably born, right, well, around the year 2000. And you may vaguely recall the Great Recession, or, and of course, you recall, everyone recalls the pandemic. So, um, but not every year is necessarily as chaotic as I think we've been seeing in the past year around the world or past years, whether it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine or what just happened, the Hamas attack in Israel in October. Um, but I just have the sense that the world is in a bit of a chaotic state and we haven't quite sorted it out yet. And who knows where that goes? Uh, you know, you, you need a crystal ball to figure those things out. Look, fundamentally, I think, um, at least in Western liberal democracies, where you can choose the future, um, you know, and, and we have a fair amount of freedom I and mean, no place is perfect. I think we have the potential to make the right choices. And uh, look, I think we better. I mean, I think we owe it to ourselves. I think we owe it to those who came here before us. When we look at past crisis, whether it's economic or otherwise, I, and perhaps I, I'm putting on some rose-colored glasses here when I say this, but, but I would generally say these crises that we've experienced in the past have 
tended to unite societies and unite civilizations. I mean, 9-11 is a relatively recent example. I think it was hard to find a country that was more united than the United States of America was on September 12th. And a lot of that really bled into Canada. That doesn't mean there weren't fractures. And certainly with the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that caused some of those. COVID was a very different situation. I, I'd say the country came out of COVID far more divided than united. There had been that little glimmer of the, the Team Canada approach early on. Is COVID an aberration in that sense? And, and in general, are we finding that as countries and as societies, crises are dividing us more than they have in the past? Yes, I think that's actually true, at least in the Western world. I'm not familiar with the, you know, the, the non-Anglosphere, you could say. So in the English-speaking world, I do think we're not as united as we once were. And the 9-11 example you just mentioned is a good, is a good uh, example of that. There were some critics of 9-11. I remember someone at the University of British Columbia, I forget her name. Uh, I think she was a former head of uh, you know, a feminist organization. I'm trying to remember which one or the status of women. Uh, in 2001 came out and basically said, well, the Americans deserved it. And that was roundly condemned uh, by most people in most places after 9-11, not universally, but you didn't have the same sort of rot within the universities even then, even though there were problems after 9-11 that you saw after October the 7th. And the pro-Hamas crowd is the best way to put it. So um, yeah, I do think there have been divisions. Uh, there, there are greater divisions now than I think in my lifetime. I mean, again, going back to the 1980s, which is, you know, my formative period, I grew up in the era, era of, you know, Brian Mulroney in this country, Ronald Reagan and others, Margaret Thatcher in Great Britain. Uh, there was a divide between those sympathetic to socialism or even Marxism worldwide and those sympathetic to free markets. Uh, and those of us on the latter won. Uh, we said, this is the way you get a more prosperous world. And we were right. You know, and before we came along, Andrew, you know, the Milton Friedmans of the world have been arguing that mm -hmm. for decades. So um, there were divisions then, but somehow there's a sharper division now. And you know what I, you know what I think it is, at least in Canada. I think the same is true, maybe even worse in the United States. If you go back 30 or 40 years, there was some interference by government in your life, of course, some of it necessary. Um, you know, you have to have jails if you do something wrong. But um, and taxes have always been there. Some of it, some of them are useful. Some of them not so much. But what, what I think actually is exacerbating the tensions, uh, the raw edges in the past couple of years is not only governments now, but courts, um, private organizations are interfering in everyone's lives almost all the time. And what I mean by that is if you go back 40 years, the Law Society of British Columbia wouldn't have cared if you were a Christian, an atheist, a Muslim, uh, you know, wanted to practice meditation in the middle of your office in the middle of the day. They didn't care. Um, or, you know, these self-regulating organizations from the Psychologist Association of Ontario, or if I get the, the name wrong, the one that, you know, manages Jordan Peterson, that he belongs to, um, the law societies around the country, they are actively, is persecuting too strong, certainly harassing members mm -hmm. that don't see things their way, um, micromanaging them, the courts. Remember the case a couple of years ago, uh, a gentleman in British Columbia couldn't talk to his 16-year-old daughter about a planned transition. Court said, no, don't talk to her. He talked to her. He was thrown in jail, even though his position would have been, do no harm, sweetheart. Maybe wait till you're 18 to think about this or do something physically. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, this would have been unimaginable for a court to interfere in the right of a parent to talk to their children about changing their body. And you see this all over the place. Um, COVID probably exacerbated that. I mean, you and I have discussed COVID before in the response. Uh, we may not be on the exact same page, but there was certainly some overreach there, to, to put it mildly. Um, 
so I do think a lot of things have been, um, there's a lot of things that have contributed to the sharp edges in the past several years. And I'm not completely sure how do we get out, get out of it. I think one of the one of the ways we get out of it, in Canada at least, is to tell professional organizations and government to, with respect uh, or not, <laughs> butt out. Uh, you don't have the right to tell parents what to mm -hmm. talk to their kids about. You know, as long as you're not abusing them physically, you can say, again, maybe on a transition, maybe wait, wait, sweetheart. That's not the business of the state. Uh, but a lot of people think it is, and they think it's the job of their professional organization to, you know, well, as you know, Andrew, uh, police your opinions, my opinions, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not only the government these days, which, you know, was a problem in some aspects 40 years ago when you and I were younger. Uh, it's a problem of all organizations from the top down thinking they should regulate, regulate our lives. No, thanks. Well, and I think when you bring up the gender example there, it, it probably reveals to what I would posit as being one of the big sources of these divides we've been talking about, which is the uh, obliteration of any sort of real consensus on, on first principles. I mean, you know, it used mm -hmm. to be a liberal and a conservative, a capital L, liberal, capital L conservative could agree on probably most things. Uh, you take free speech, for example. I mean, it was very uncontroversial uh, 25 years ago for to say, well, you know, free speech is an ironclad principle in Canada. We must protect at all costs. And if there was a proposal that was seen as antithetical to free speech, people would roundly condemn it. And you look at, uh, you know, patriotism following 9-11, to, to go back to that example. Uh, if at its core, you can say, listen, this is an attack on America. America is a good value. It's a good system. It's a good place. Well, you fast forward 22 years, and that is not going to be a consensus you get in the United States, that the United States or indeed any national identity is uh, positive. Uh, free speech, there is no consensus behind the idea that it is a value that is universal, that is good. Uh, we can't get on board as a society and have a consensus about whether a male and a female are fundamentally different things. And, you know, when I think about it, I don't know what first principle we have left that you could say there is a consensus around. And I, I really am not sure there is one in Canada today. Well, there's been a great departure from reality, hasn't there? So in the 20th century, the departure from reality was Marxism, right? We know how to organize things from the top down and all of you have to follow line because that's how utopia, economic utopia and paradise will come about. Marxists were wrong. You can't manage people in that manner from the top down. They have choices, interests, aptitudes. People have different skill sets. We found that out, or at least I thought most of us did, and most of us were convinced of that before we had to have the debate in the 20th century. Um, so, But now we've got anti-reality all over the place. Uh, the notion that you should look at history as perfect, otherwise we're going to cancel you, i.e. John A. MacDonald, we're talking to you, um, So, uh, it, which is an anti-reality position. The notion that there is no difference between men and women, and that this is just a social construct, to use the language of, of um, you know, the, the deconstructionists and others. Um, really, uh, no fundamental difference. Uh, you know, no physical difference between men and women. No biological difference. Um, you know that feelings should trump physical realities. Uh, that's anti-reality. So yeah, we've had a breakdown of reality, and uh, and not much of an attachment to it. And, and frankly, you know, that's been a problem in human history, but I thought we got through that, 
you know, courtesy of a number of things and developments in the last 500 years, at least in the West. Well, um, I, I just, and just to interject there for a moment, we have access to more knowledge and mm. more people have access to a, a seemingly infinite amount of knowledge. And this has still happened mm. in spite of that, or right. perhaps because well, of that. And, and maybe, you know, here's something to think about. You remember, uh, well, first of all, Alan Borovoy on your, your notion of, um, civil liberties, right? This notion that free speech was important. Alan Borovoy, uh, now deceased, wrote a book about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, and he was a civil rights fellow. I can't remember the organization he was with here in Canada, wrote a great book defending free speech. And he was Jewish and, you know, would defend the right of others to, you know, um, I guess, you know, even like the ACLU would defend the right of the KKK to march in Alabama. Uh, they weren't thrilled about it, but they would defend the right of free speech. Um, you know, these days, it seems like people are fairly tribal, and don't want others to speak up. And it's a problem of the left and, and sometimes on the right as well. But the, yeah, the other thing here that's going on is, um, look, I, I think you've got um, not only a flight from reality, but you've got, you're right, we don't agree in the basics. So let, let's take you know some of the pro Hamas, as I call them, um, demonstrations in Canada over the last two months that we've seen. There used to be an understanding. I don't even think the KKK would necessarily show up to a Jewish business in cities and try and shut them down. They would just protest in some small southern town where, you know, they could gather a crowd, I guess. These days, we have people that think it's okay and they think it's a, a virtue or they think it's part of free speech to be able to physically intimidate other people and or shut down their businesses, you know, by blocking the sidewalk. That used to be off the radar. Uh, but now we have people defending this as a manner of free speech. So I think actually part of the problem, Andrew, is people no longer make distinctions. They live in the moment. Um, there was a fellow in the 1980s who wrote a book, Neil Postman, a couple of books on uh, TV. And he was critical of TV because he said, you know, we've gone from Plato's cave where he had images on the wall, right? And this was much of human history before literacy back to the age of the image, and he blamed TV. And I always wondered, would social media with the rise of the internet make us more literate or less literate? My conclusion is pretty much that people have become even worse than they were with TV in that they look at an image, they look at something today on the internet, or even actually from 150 years ago, and they become immediately angry, immediately perturbed, and they're emotional about it. Okay, that's what images do. They provoke emotion. They don't provoke reason. And so I think Neil Postman was right. TV, you know, in that sense, had the temptation away from literacy and reason. And I think... In, in a way that I didn't think would happen, that I thought the, the internet would make us more able to reason. I think it's even tougher because again, people can just click on something for a second and see an image. And that's why people can't figure out where they should be on Gaza, or you've got people that look at Gaza and only think, well, isn't that a tragedy in Gaza? Yes, it is. Do you understand why Israel has to attack Hamas in Gaza and why tragically civilians die? Because they've got no peace partner on the other side, because Hamas has been doing this for 18 years. So I think there's something about the internet that produces an immediate effect, um, just like television did with images and you get all the images you want on the net and people are, have lost the ability to reason properly. Yeah, and there's also been, and this has been discussed elsewhere, but there's been a bit of a reorientation around very weird battle lines. I mean, we've seen mm. academia taken over by postmodernism, postcolonialism. And uh, when you take that colonialism or anti-colonialism framework and apply it mm. to everything, it makes, for, I mean, politics makes for strange bedfellows, as they say. So if you decide Hamas is the oppressed and Israel is the oppressor, then all of a sudden you have to view anything Hamas is doing as being this virtuous and noble post 
post-colonial struggle. And you say, well, you know, you've raped women, you've kidnapped people, you've killed babies, but all of that is your struggle for colonialism. And it gets cast in this narrative. And people, I mean, again, the, the, the punchline on this has always been queers against Israeli apartheid, this longstanding group of people that would have no place in Gaza, uh, would not be accepted by Hamas, that view that Hamas and Gaza are the virtuous ones and Israel is the bad guy here. But there's not really a, a critical reevaluation re of these contradictions. Yeah, you're right. And so again, we're back to sort of simplistic reasoning or no, no reasoning at all. And people are being tribal, which is always a temptation. But we used to be able to reason our way away from that and say, what kind of society do we want? Um, and that seems to be, that's not the question that's being asked. It's simply, yes, you know, as you mentioned at the start of that question, uh, the indigenous versus colonial uh, narrative is one of those. Uh, I'm going to have a column in the new year talking about this, why it's a mistake to look at society and others through that lens. Because again, it's very simplistic. What do you mean indigenous? We're all indigenous uh, to Africa. Um, the first, you know, people who we now call indigenous, their ancestors came over to North America 20,000 years ago. That's a blip in the history of human existence. For French fur traders 500 years ago, everyone built what we now know as Canada. And so to have this indigenous versus colonialist divide is absurd. In addition, it simplifies other things. Was it a good thing or bad thing the British banned sooties, city, you know, bride burning or widow burning in India? Or, you know, was it a bad thing that the British colonialists tried to outlaw slavery in Northwestern British Columbia um, in their empire when it had been outlawed everywhere else much earlier uh, when they were fighting indigenous folks in BC? And I'm not picking on indigenous folks, but the, my, my point is every ethnicity or ancestry or citizenship ha has some black marks on it. And, um, you know, we need to grab some more modesty on that. My background's German, but you know, I, there's not much in the last two centuries I'd take from Germany, whether it's recent energy policy uh, or their 19th century, you know, illiberal thinking and their 20th century fascination with uh, pseudoscience and anti-science, you know, race theories. So one does not have to take one's ethnicity or race or even nationality when it's wrong and support it, you know, my country right or wrong. Uh, but again, this requires reason. And uh, I, I think the combination of identity politics, the simplification of that, indigenous versus colonial, and you know the normal tribal impulse, but this time directed towards identities instead of good ideas, uh, is is part of this whole package of of creating this um, these sharp edges that are that are uh, you know uh, ratcheting up things out there, if I can put it that way, or you know, are making relationships difficult between human beings. We have a, a prime minister who once, you know, unironically, and I would say uncontroversially, it wasn't really condemned by that many people, called Canada a post-national country, which is to say Canada does not have a unique Canadian national identity. And he was saying this as really an extreme manifestation of, of what multiculturalism is, which is that uh, we have so many things and so many people here that Canada really ceases to exist. I mean, Mark Stein once said Canada is basically like Terminal 1 at Pearson Airport, where it's composition is just whoever's walking through at that particular moment. And, and I'd say in retrospect, that was a better position than the one that came about in the last couple of years where, where Canada did mean something and it meant something very negative. It meant something very unholy. Canada was a country of genocide. Canada was a country of, of mm -hmm. oppression. Canada was, was all of these things. And, you know, just in December, we saw young Dundas Square is getting a new name in, in Toronto because uh, Dundas, even though he was an abolition, abolitionist, was deemed too close to that 
you know, naughty era that we've decided to condemn. And I, I feel like the new Trudeau-pian position here is becoming more commonplace, which is that uh, Canada as a country is, is something to be reviled. And I, I go back to the subtitle of your book, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. I mean, you flip those around and you have pretty much uh, the progressive view of this country. We should cancel and not cherish. Both Trudeau opinions were, were in error, and are in error. Right. So the notion that Canada is a genocidal nation state is word inflation, and it does a great disservice to those who have suffered through actual physical genocides. I'm not a big fan of the, you know, the notion that there's cultural genocide. Um, yes, you know, part of your culture can slip away intentionally or unintentionally or be repressed. That's not the same thing as physical genocide. And we should never equate the two. It's word inflation. Uh, and it's very damaging because when everything is genocide, then nothing is. Rwanda had a genocide. Um, Nazis murdered Jews in a genocidal campaign over six years during World War II. Let's be clear about words. Uh, George Orwell always worried about gutting words and meaning the, making them into something they're not or something different or, or avoiding the real issue by using uh, words that are far too cute or clever. Um, so that, that's a wrong position, um, the late Trudeau position. But the earlier one is just as an error that we're sort of this post-national nation state. Uh, and look, I, I'm pro-immigrant. I like the fact everyone from around the world can be here. That only works, though, if you anchor around a few core ideas, the rights of the individual, um, you know, if you understand the rights of women. Uh, you know, and part of this, the fault of this, again, is this moral relativism that every idea is created equal. People love equality. It's not always a good thing. Not every idea is created equal. Uh, if you think Jews should die because you're Nazi, a Nazi or you belong to Hamas, your ideas are not equal to the Western uh, traditional concept that individuals have the right to survive and thrive. And increasingly over the, you know, the, the centuries, we got to treating everyone as an individual and not part of their group. That was the Martin Luther King vision, which I thought we had almost achieved until we went into reverse. So, um, yeah, we've, we've got problems with that sort of post-national concept, but ultimately that this notion behind it, that every idea is equal. Really? Okay. So if you're in Toronto, as I once wrote in a Globe and Mail column probably six years ago, and I'm not sure if they'd reprint it these days, <laughs> if you really believe all ideas are equal in Toronto, invite up 10 million Texans with, you know, believe in the right to bear arms. You like that idea? I'm going to guess a lot of Toronto progressives don't. Uh, but I also don't like ideas of, say, you know, maybe a fundamentalist Mormon breakaway sect that thinks women are property and that it's okay to have 12 or 20 wives. But I don't care if it's Mormons or a more fundamentalist, you know, strain of Islam that might believe the same thing. Um, I think women have the right to be individuals and not to be treated as, uh, as cattle. So uh, these things, ideas are not created equal. But we live in this age where nobody wants to say that some ideas are better than others. Uh, I prefer monogamy to polygamy because I think ultimately it's a bad deal for women. You know, we, we've had this problem even in like South, Southwestern British Columbia. I don't know if that, that, you know, breakaway Mormon sect is still there, you know, bountiful BC. But I remember interviewing someone about 10 or 15 years ago on her book, and she was an escapee from that. And you could tell quite clearly that uh, not all ideas are created equal because that particular one oppressed women. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe that's the core problem, Andrew, is we live in such a morally relativistic age and people don't know how to make distinctions, and that, therefore they also don't know how to make necessary moral distinctions. And now it's showing up in a time of war where people can't think back five seconds to October the 7th and why Hamas is at fault for all the deaths in the Gaza Strip, including those of innocent Gazans. Let's blame them. Let's not blame Israel, which has no choice, because if it lies down, they're all dead. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and to go, I'll, be, I'll quote Mark Stein again, because I think you've, you've raised an important point here. He once said something along the lines of, you could have five middle-aged white women sitting, sitting around a table, and to use a contemporary example, you add to the mix, you know, Hamas's leading cleric that wants to kill the Jews, you've made it more diverse, but you haven't made it better. So this idea that diversity is an inherent moral good is incredibly flawed, but it's also, I, I'd say, an inevitable consequence of the prioritization of, of group identity and identity politics, which you were talking about earlier. And how do we break that? And, and is that consistent with how a lot of real people are viewing the world around them? Or is it purely an academia elite establishment cre creation? No, I think it's seeped into popular culture, though I think most people, you know, I get a sense most people think there's something wrong with what's going on now. Mm -hmm. um, they just don't know how to push back. I mean, look, some of us started a think tank to push back on this, right? That's why we started the Aristotle Foundation, you know, uh, to make people think is the short, you know, maybe motto we should use at the Aristotle Foundation. We've got another slogan, champion, reason, democracy, and civilization. But in essence, you can shorten it to, you know, we try to make people think. Um, and right, diversity, this is the problem with living on buzzwords or living on the surface. Diversity means nothing or everything. Um, look, the United States was very diverse in 1860. It had pro-slave holding states and anti-slave holding states, but that's not the kind of diversity you want. You know, you want the kind of diversity where, yeah, your skin color doesn't matter um, and the rest of it. That's, that's a good kind of diversity, but it means it doesn't matter. So stop paying attention to groups and readopt the Martin Luther King uh, preference for, you know, the content of your character and look at that. So um, how do we get back there? Well, you know, I think part of it is what you and I do and try and discuss, you, discuss these issues openly. I mean, I've, I've told people sometimes uh, when, I, when I talk about the Aristotle Foundation, what we're trying to do, I think actually just telling the truth, um, you know, is a good defensive, but also offensive strategy in this sense. Um, you know, people, I think, eventually get sick of uh, propaganda. They get sick of, you know, eating uh, cotton candy. I, mean, I loved that as a kid. I wasn't very nourishing. Eventually, people get sick of the saccharin or, you know, the excuses or, you know, the propaganda. They, they, they sense something's wrong. So when, come, when someone comes out and says, when everybody else is saying the emperor looks wonderful today, doesn't he? <laughs> Aren't his colorful clothes just, you know, superb? And he must have a wonderful designer. And you look around and you go, did I miss something? I think he's buck naked. And then people go, you can say that? Yes, you can. And maybe you should. You know, because this is also what, what we're seeing uh, as well is an attack on empiricism. The anti-reality nature of our age is an attack on empiricism. And if you force me to say the emperor is fully clothed when I think he's buck naked, or if you, Andrew, tell me you're a woman and you haven't transitioned actually to being a woman physically, you know, I'd call you a woman then. I won't call you that now because for you to demand that I call you that, Andrew, is anti-reality. It's a denial of my empirical senses. That's a recipe for madness, but it also explains our age because people want you to go along, to get along, to say things that are not true, or at least are suspect and should be debated. And if you can't debate what should be obvious, the emperor has no clothes, then you're in a very different type of world and it's anti-reality. And it, it is a recipe for insanity. And insanity is also part of what we're dealing with these days, uh, a willing insanity as, a, as opposed to truth telling. Uh, and the, the left in particular used to think it spoke truth to power. I always thought that was overdone. Um, you know, they, they spoke convenient um, bromides to, I don't know, Marxist historians and Marxist econ economists who agreed with them. 
you know, but, um, and, and uh, anyway, yes, not to digress, but I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I, you know, this notion of truth to power, um, I think it's, it's something that actually the, the general population would like to see and like to hear, uh, but they're not seeing it because a lot of our, you know, academics and some of our politicians are in la la land and don't want to say the emperor is naked. Anyone who's been familiar with the the social psychological Milgram experiment, which just to, to give it a very crude summation, is one where uh, people are are effectively going along with administering pain up until the point of a potentially lethal dose of, of pain to someone simply because someone in a white lab coat tells them to. And I, I look up the experiment yourself. I, I'm giving it a summary there, but the the takeaway from that is that people are remarkably deferential towards authority. And as I reflect on that now, I, I think a new authority that really wasn't envisioned in that Milgram experiment is the masses uh, and conformity, whereas people just look at the world around them. And like you've said, they, uh, they're like those people in the emperor's clothes that just don't want to say what they're thinking, and they deny that part of themselves. They kill that part of themselves because they don't want to stand out. I, my wife and I were on a streetcar in Vienna near the tail end of COVID, and, and Austria had gotten rid of all uh, mandates. There were no mask requirements. The only exception was public transit in Vienna, which we didn't know about. So we get on this without masks. Everyone else is wearing a mask. We look, you know, people looking at us, and we didn't have them because we thought they were all done. And by the time we had been on this streetcar for five minutes, it was amazing how many masks had started to come off because we had inadvertently staged a bit of a mutiny where other people that didn't want to but thought they had to were, were going against it. And I mean, people can take from that whatever they want on the COVID stuff specifically, but on speech, it's so important. If you deny what you know to be true, eventually you'll start believing the lie or at least everyone in society will be going along with the lie that it doesn't matter if they believe. Well, and you may be wrong about something. So you can believe something sincerely, but it doesn't make it true. I don't believe in your truth and my truth. I actually believe in objective truth. You know, but the key point is, yes, you have to tell it as you see it, even if you're incorrect, and maybe you should get your, you know, eyes checked or Well, John know, Stuart Mill, it's that process yeah. that lets us learn what the real truth is because exactly. you, you're wrong, I'm right, I'm wrong, you're right. We'll we'll find the truth if we air those. Yes, exactly. Because you don't know if you're mistaken until you say something out loud. You know, somebody says, Well, have you considered X? Mm -hmm. So um yeah, that's that's the actual way to to obtain, you know, or possibly obtain truth, or at least rule out the false stuff, right? There's a lot of falsification. That's the scientific method. You know, you can't always prove something's true, but you can falsify stuff. So uh, to say, no, I don't think that's the explanation. And here is why. Um, look, I think most people are followers, and it's always been true in human history. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean this is also this shows the importance of leadership. Um, if you lack leaders that are willing to tell the truth, if you lack leaders that are willing to be brave, um, if leaders, you know, uh, political leaders and others, or, you know, leaders in quotes in that case, if those who have some, you know, ability to amplify their vo voices, and there's a lot more of those these days than there used to be, aren't interested in telling the truth, but are interested in an agenda, an anti-reality agenda. And again, this is not ideological. I mean, I've seen this all over the place. Then, then we're in a pretty pickle. So... Uh, I think maybe that's part of it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, social media doesn't help here, I guess, because it amplifies all sorts of stuff and it's hard to sort through. And people honestly sometimes don't know, know who to believe. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have any magic bullet solutions for this other than, you know, a core value of freedom of expression, yes, does need to be there. So you and I and everyone else on this you know planet with what are seven or eight billion of us, can debate certain things to hopefully arrive at a less error-prone position. 
To, to bring it back full circle, Mark, to how we started here as we wrap this up, and I, I asked you then, are Canada's best years ahead or behind? And you said you're an optimist. So what's necessary for us to make sure they are ahead? Well, tell the truth. <clears throat> Be clear that when it comes to free expression, um, that doesn't mean violence. So you can't cross the line and shut down someone's shop or show up at their dorm and harass them because they're Jewish. So we need to make distinctions. So we need to be able to have free expression to in our search for truth and make distinctions. And I think if we start doing that, you know, saying things out loud that we think are true and we may be mistaken, but say things that we think are true and uh, ask people to start making distinctions, then I think we're on our way to a bit of a better uh, world. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, the Internet is, you know, like drinking from a fire hose and it's only going to get more that way. So. But I think on a personal level, you have to commit to those two things, like try and have a bit of an open mind. Uh, we all have our biases and, you know, ask other people to, and yourself to make distinctions. All right. Well, lots of great food for thought there. And as I said at the beginning, food for thought in the 1860. Oh, I got to move it over there. The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished and Not Cancelled. The editor is the founder of the Aristotle Foundation, Mark Milkey. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew, and Happy New Year. And to you as well. And to all of you tuning in, hope you have a great rest of your Boxing Day and a Happy New Year. But we'll talk to you a couple times between now and then. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.